glad to see all this morning. Our reading this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 16, verse 6, 16 and 24. And if you do not have a Bible, please take the uh, one on your seat with you, or if you know someone who needs a Bible, please put that into their hands. Jesus said, for a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus said, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves by what I meant saying? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Larry, for reading that passage for us. I hope you're going to keep your Bibles open, because we need God's Word this morning. I want you to have your fingers in it. I want you to be able to study it, even if you're asking tons of questions. That's a really good thing. You know what's a sign of unhealth? To read the Bible and have no questions. Okay? That means that we've become apathetic to the Word. The Bible should always have some things that are hard to understand, some things where it's really pushing in on us. We're like, oh, I'm, not sure I, what that, I, I'm not sure how to take that. I'm not sure I want to walk in step with that. A sign of a healthy Christian life is somebody who is, who is interested, engaged, searching, seeking, trying to, get to not only understand but apply to their lives. And so I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Feel free to even, if you are comfortable, that Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you and, and uh, write in it, underline it. Uh, and maybe we can uh, meet over Zoom or for coffee, and we can talk about some of your questions, so we'd be happy to do so. Um, I want to, again, extend a greeting to those who might just be joining us this morning or online, especially when the weather turns like this. It's we become late, uh, more late and late and late comers. (laughs) It's just how it goes. It's how it goes. It's hard to get out of bed on cold, dark, dreary mornings in the winter, especially after Christmas, right? Uh, my birthday comes in January, and it's one of the worst months. But nonetheless, uh, my name is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just, it's a, it's a privilege to have you here today. Um, I want to wish you all a Merry Advent, which is not maybe something that you wished somebody merry before. We were just saying Merry Christmas. I want to I argue that that actually is a little early, even though I greeted so many of you that way this morning. We're going to talk about how we came to celebrate Christmas so early later in our sermon. It's actually a very new thing for us to begin to celebrate pretending as if Christmas has already arrived before 25th. It's actually not, that's in the last 40, 50 years that that's taken place. 
It's called uh, something called like a, the Christmas Crunch or the Christmas Chase. Um, but the uh, um, Advent that we're in right now, these four weeks are particularly a season of longing. As I've already said, it's uh, a season where we are uh, anticipating the birth of Christ. And if you are joining us here at this church or in church um, perhaps for the very first time or for a long time, I, I just want you to know we are so grateful to have you. We, it's very common for people to take an interest in church during Christmas time, perhaps more so than, so than any other time during the year. Maybe it's because we have a ch- connection with the church in our past, and Christmas feels like the right time to uh, dust off that old tradition. Maybe that you are trying to uh, get your spouses or your parents or uh, maybe Santa's uh, good side, especially this time of year, and so you finally agreed to come or to log on. But still, I think there's an even more important reason why church and Christmas are bound up together and always will be. It has to do with what the message of Christmas is about, with what is bound up with the baby swaddled in the manger. You see, at Christmas, we do far more than sing about hope, about peace, about joy, and about love, Christians understand that these grand ideas, which so often seem outside of our grasp throughout the year, are, or they seem uh, bound to break apart like that cheap Christmas toy, Christians understand that these grand ideas actually became concrete realities in Jesus Christ through the one that the shepherds and angels worshipped as Christ, the newborn king. In fact, we don't realize is that the very reason that the grocery stores get a makeover, the reason that you see carols come onto the radio as soon as Thanksgiving wraps up or long before that is actually because the world had started this season of Advent uh, 1,500 years ago. The Christians made over the world because they wanted to anticipate the birth of Christ, and those traditions have stuck with us. We've not been able to shake them. We're haunted by them still to practice their longing for 1,500 years, for the hope, joy, peace, and love which has dawned in Jesus and will still come in full. Over the last two weeks, we've considered two of these ideas, both hope and peace, and this week we are moving to consider the third of these virtues, which is joy. This is what the candle here represents. This pink candle is the candle of joy, the same joy which the angels announced in Luke Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Only like last week, we aren't going to focus primarily on the beginning of Jesus' life. We're going to focus on his death. I know, Merry Christmas, right? The, uh, anybody seen uh, Home Alone? You know, Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. That's what it feels like to be focusing on the end of Jesus' life. But trust me that John 16 has a lot to teach us about why Jesus came in the first place. Why the kind of joy that we long for, the same joy which is announced by the angels, could come no other way than through the cross. And I hope you're going to keep your Bibles open as we look through uh, John 16 to look at three things. The coming sorrow, the departing sorrow, and the good news of great joy. The coming sorrow, the departing sorrow, and the good news of great joy. Let's begin with the first, the coming sorrow. Now I realize many of us had had plans that were disrupted this Christmas season. How many of you, Christmas is going to look different for you than it has in past years? 
Okay. I realize many of us are uh, not going to have the Christmas get-togethers that we had planned, or at least they're going to look a lot different. Certain people will not be there. Perhaps because we are taking extra precautions. I'm going to move this forward. Or because someone we love is no longer there to share it with us. But still, think back to Christmas's past. Have you ever had a holiday dinner go south? Anybody ever had something like that? A really awkward family get-together holiday dinner? It was going fine until it wasn't anymore. It didn't go according to plan. Well, in John chapter 16, we have another holiday dinner, you could call it, a Passover Seder dinner with Jesus and his disciples. And what the disciples don't realize is that this dinner, at least according to their imagination, isn't going to go according to plan. It's not going to go how they imagined it. They didn't know that this would be the last dinner that they would have with Jesus, at least before his death. And this dinner isn't exactly full of hugs and handshakes and warm apple cider. The disciples had enjoyed Passover seders since they were young kids, since they were young boys. Every every year, actually, since they were young boys. It was one of the, the hallmarks of being Jewish. But no dinner in the past that they could ever remember had gone quite like this one. The last week, you see, of Jesus' life prior to this event was full of highs, full of miraculous things. In fact, it seems that Jesus couldn't be more popular with the people. He was paraded on a donkey's back into Jerusalem. This things couldn't be going better for him, and things could not be going better for them. And yet Jesus, he didn't seem to share their cockiness. He kept suggesting during this dinner that things were about to change in a drastic way. In fact, he seemed to be suggesting not only that they, even disciples as loyal as Peter, would betray him of all things, but that he would be leaving them. It was an uncomfortable and confusing evening, culminating in what seems, what seems to be the strangest statement thus far, one that comes up actually three times in our passage, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. You can imagine the murmurs at the table, pulling on each other's cloaks. I, I mean, are you, are you following Jesus? I mean, we're, we're not going to see him for a little while, and we will see him? Is he taking a trip without us? I mean, is this some kind of like divine hide-and-seek? And what does he mean by a little while? I love the honesty of verse 18. We don't know what he is talking about. <laughs> All of this goes right over the disciples' heads. And I can empathize that with that. Have you ever been there? You switch into monologuing with your friends, with your kids, with your spouse, or the grocery store clerk, and even though they're nodding, you can tell you lost them a long time ago in the conversation. Their eyes begin to glaze over. They just want the conversation to be over. I've been there more than, more than once as a teacher. And, I, and you can tell it's just going in one ear and out the other. You might as well be lecturing on macroeconomics or quantum theory. Whether as a dad or, again, as a teacher, there are times where I have to ask myself, is any of that make sense? The thing is, though, is Jesus knows it. He knows it confuses his disciples the way that he's talking. In fact, he asks them, is this what you're confused about? But then notice... He does not explain himself. He doesn't circle back and say, okay, let me, let me put it in simpler terms. Can you imagine how frustrating this would be? He says, is this your confusion? Okay, moving on. Jesus doesn't clarify for his disciples. If you keep reading, we're going to find out 
that what Jesus is talking about here, his, his coming departure and his coming arrival, actually refers to his crucifixion and his resurrection. I realize this might catch some of us by surprise, but the way the Bible presents Jesus' death is not as a grand accident in history. Instead, the Jesus of the Gospels not only knows what is about to happen to him, he intends to go there. The Jesus of the Gospels says that this is the purpose for which he was born, if you can believe it. But if this is true, why doesn't then Jesus come outright and say it? Why doesn't he fill in the gaps for his disciples? Why not clear up the confusion right then and there and say, okay, here's what I mean. I mean, I'm about to die and be raised from the dead. We'll get to this more in a second, but Jesus knows that they not only don't understand it, they actually, they actually can't understand it, at least the significance of these events, until after they have taken place. You see, Jesus and his disciples, the disciples had gone there, they had given their, their whole lives, they had given their futures over to Jesus, assuming that Jesus was the rescuer that they had longed for, and they had no categories for his death. They'd given everything to him. They needed Jesus to live. I mean, especially, I mean, how didn't all of God's plans to rescue and restore the world, the kind of promises that caused them to call this one the Messiah, didn't all of those plans and promises, uh, didn't they hinge upon his victory? Didn't they hinge upon his life? What possi- what, where possibly could death fit into all of that? Even as Jesus hinted at his death over and over and over again. As you read these books, you're going to find that Jesus talks about his, his death over and over again. And yet, they figured he was being too hard on himself. They figured he was being a pessimist. Maybe he was just telling one of those parables again that they had yet to understand. I mean, his death couldn't possibly be what he literally meant, right? They had categories for a messiah, a rescuer, a mighty, conquering, world-changing messiah, but not a crucified one. Maybe you can empathize with the disciples. God, it seems to confuse you. God's ways are hidden from you. You want to understand what God might be up to in the world, let alone in your life, and you just don't. Especially when it comes to pain. What purpose could God possibly have in pain? I mean, doesn't God want good for me? Doesn't he want me to be happy? The angels promised joy to the world, right? What purpose could pain have in the midst of it all? The disciples not only didn't understand what Jesus was referring to, they could not understand what he's referring to. Not unless the hard drive of their assumptions was reset. Not unless their categories for the Messiah fundamentally changed and were redefined. And so, instead of explaining what is about to happen, he does something more important. Jesus shifts the conversation from the events themselves to the effect these events are going to have on all of them shifts from the events themselves to the effect that these events are going to have on all of them. In other words, what follows in verses 20 through 24 is Jesus' explanation of what it's going to feel like to be his disciples over the next few days. He was not only aware of what was about to happen to him, but of the effect this was going to have upon them in the process. They, in other words, were going to feel sorrow. The kind of disorienting, 
life-altering, gut-wrenching sorrow that we spend our lives avoiding. The kind of sorrow we spend our lives trying to protect ourselves against with our health insurance plans, with our doctor's visits, with the neighborhoods that we pick. Sorrow is something that we all are avoiding trying to keep at bay in our lives. And yet Jesus says to his disciples, sorrow cannot no, it not only cannot be avoided, it is certain, it is coming. They would, as verse 20 puts it, weep and lament. More than that, they would weep and lament while the rest of the world will rejoice. They would be sorrowful, alone in their sorrow, and they would not understand where God was in the midst of it all. Jesus not only knows the effect this is going to have, he knows that he, in a sense, is causing this to his disciples. He is inflicting this kind of sorrow upon them. This is what Jesus prepares them for, a coming sorrow. And yet, at the end of verse 20, he claims that sorrow will not have the final word. Which leads to number two, the departing sorrow. Now, one of the things I don't think I will ever understand, and my wife is traveling this week, so I feel like I can use this illustration. Actually, she knows I'm going to use this illustration anyways. Uh, She's with her sister this week. I won't understand my wife's fascination with birth, okay? So my my wife loves talking about the birth process, particularly with those who have also gone through childbirth themselves. In fact, when I was in seminary, we would get together with our friends, and uh, it was really funny to watch this happen, but the husbands kind of would break off, and the wives would break off, and while the husbands were often talking about, we were all training to be pastors. It was just weird conversations if you were to live on, listen in on those. We'd talk about church life, talk about theology, or the Broncos. Um, It seemed that the conversation, though, among our wives always turned one direction, to childbirth of all things, I'd get into I get get in uh, I would go to get a soda and find at least one of our wives in deep detail. I certainly did not want to hear, and uh, when I prepared to ask my wife about it later, she would always say, "You don't understand. Birth is beautiful." Now I've been present for four births now, and I don't know that I would ever have described birth as beautiful. It is loud, it's frantic, and it's messy, and that's just my part of the process. It is not beautiful, at least in my initial impressions. But actually, I think the scriptures side with my wife in this. I recognize that for some here, talking about birth can be a painful thing. You know, I, I, I don't want to not empathize with that, that you've lost kids. Some of you have not been able to have kids. I want you to know that God gets you, he loves you, and all throughout the, bo- the Bible, he shows his compassion to the barren. Shows special compassion to the barren. And yet, stick with me, in the Bible, the metaphor for childbirth helps us understand God's work in our sorrow. You see, childbirth is like, is unlike, I should say, any other kind of pain. It is unlike other kinds of pain for two reasons. First, it is a passing pain. It is a passing pain. That pain, their pain, is a passing pain. Now, there are There are a few moments that I have felt more powerless than childbirth. So just to those of you who are fathers here, do you ever feel like that with you when you you were in the childbirth process? You're just like, 
wish I could help. There's nothing, literally nothing I can do here. Like there's, there's no moments that I've ne- felt more powerless than in childbirth. And yet I think of what I said to my wife over and over again as she broke my fingers with her iron grip. Uh, you're doing great, sweetheart. It'll all be over soon. The worst kind of pain is the kind of pain that doesn't end. Those of you who uh, deal with chronic illness, you know what this is like. The pain may not be all that severe moment to moment. Sometimes it is. But simply knowing that the pain will always be there is overwhelming. Some of us just want to know that our pain will be over soon. We, if we, could, we could just endure it if we knew that the end was in sight. This is actually, though, what Jesus promises his disciples. Their pain, their confusion, their despair, everything that they are going to face would only be for what? A little while. But this gets to even something more important, I think. What makes this kind of pain different is not just that it's a passing pain. This pain is a productive pain. It is a productive pain. Again, just ask my wife what helped her breathe through every contraction. Contractions which got worse and worse and worse is knowing that they were producing something. Knowing that these contractions weren't actually, weren't just going to end, that they were actually producing something beautiful. They were accomplishing something. The thing about, that makes the child, the birth of, sorry, the pain of childbirth, not just tolerable, but in my wife's words, beautiful, is because it produces what? A baby at the end of the process. When babies finally came, uh, you know what my, uh, my wife is not talking about when those babes, babies have finally arrived? She's not talking about all the pain that she went through to get them there. That's not the thing on her mind. She sees the baby in her arms, and the passing memory of that sorrow, that pain, is, is seen its, 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 uh, it's seen to its end. It's seen to its fruition. It's seen its purpose played out. Notice that Jesus doesn't promise an end to the disciples' sorrow, does he? He promises that their sorrow would give birth to joy. How? It turns out that Jesus is not the first one to use this metaphor in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And I want to look at just one other passage where it comes. Perhaps one of the passages that's at the forefront of Jesus' mind comes from the prophet Isaiah, the prophet that gives us some of the most glorious promises about Jesus' coming. In chapter 26, verse 16 through 21. Or sorry, 16 through uh, 18, we'll read first. O Lord, in distress they sought you. Speaking of the Israelites. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she was near to giving birth, So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but listen to this, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Here Isaiah pictures a different kind of childbirth. He uses childbirth as a different kind of illustration, doesn't he? The same excruciating pains of childbirth, but they produce nothing. They give birth to to wind. What an honest picture of a people who were supposed to 
produce a rescue for the world. Israel was meant to be used by God as an instrument of his deliverance, and yet their best attempts at it had failed. They had given birth to wind. Just as our best attempts, friends, to save ourselves will ultimately fail as well. We will give birth only to wind. But in verse 19, it doesn't end there. Isaiah continues, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Another birth is spoken of here. There's the birth that only gives birth to wind. That is, the, the, all of our attempts at self-salvation, even to save the lives of others, that prove fruitless, meaningless, that we are just aware of our own failure in the process. And yet God says his plan isn't done, that he will accomplish it. Even, in fact, a greater birth is coming, a greater birth that will mean life to the dead. Israel was no more able to bring deliverance to the earth than I am able to birth a baby myself. And yet God says a birth would come. A birth that would mean deliverance. A birth that would mean rescue. Again, a birth that would mean life to the dead. This isn't just an end of sorrow. This is the end of the sorrow, the sorrow of death. And only God could bring about an end like that. Looking back at John 16, what Jesus is saying is that his death and the sorrow it brought on those who loved him was on the way to joy. It was on the way to life. What the disciples didn't realize, though, is that there would be no birth without the birth pains. Without sorrow, there would be no joy. But it's not just their sorrow, it turns out. It's Jesus' sorrow. Ultimately, it's Jesus' sorrow that turns our sorrow to joy. In fact, just prior to the cross, it's very interesting. When Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, cries out to the Lord, is there any other way? He says to his disciples that he is facing a sorrow, a sorrow that is like death. He describes himself as being sorrowful even to the point of death. After all, his sorrow concerned what he concerned his own coming death. Jesus knew, you see, on this night that he would lose all things. His hour would come. He would suffer anguish, even death. Why? Because only his sorrow might produce joy for us. Only his sorrow would turn our sorrow around. Only God could do something like this. Only God could use sorrows as the very thing that produce our joy. It reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 8, chapter 28. And we know that for, all, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now notice it doesn't say here that all things are, are good. That is just false. There are many things that God himself calls evil. There are, some, there are many things that happen to you that are genuine sorrows. God does not call those things good. But what does it say? He works in all things for the good of those who love, them, love him. Only God could take sorrows and actually use them as the very means to produce joy within us. 
Only our God is powerful to do that. Christians can be certain that God makes use of sorrow for their good, for their joy, because he used the greatest sorrow in history in that way. He produced joy from, even through, the darkest day in human history. Yet as Jesus points out, yes, yes, the disciples would not see him for a little while. And weeping and sorrow would come to them. We're bound to come with it. But after a little while, they would see him again. The earth would give birth to the one who was first born of a virgin. Now, though a firstborn from among the dead, bringing life and joy to those whose faith would rest upon him. Let me say that again. The earth would give birth to the one who was firstborn of a virgin, but now is a firstborn from among the dead, bringing life and joy to those whose faith would rest upon him. Amen? This leads us to, number three, the enduring joy. Last week I quoted uh, two pretty famous Christmas songs, and uh, I want to, uh, sorry, the good news of great joy. And I want to talk about uh, one more song today, if, I, if you can bear with me. That I just find really fascinating and enlightening. I want to give you a little background to it. The song is called We Need a Little Christmas. We need a little Christmas. Da, 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 da. You guys know the song? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to sing it for you. I will read it. Okay. Nobody wants to go through that. Uh, the song actually comes from a Broadway musical set during the Wall Street crash of 1929. The song from the musical became so popular that it now works its way onto radio today. And it uh, tells of a woman who lost her fortune in the Wall Street crash. And the main character decides now, more than ever, she, her young nephew, and her household servants need a little Christmas now. And so they deck out the house with Holly for Christmas long before Christmas has come, which was very abnormal in days like this. Uh, You would wait usually until the week of or Christmas itself to finally deck out your house this this way. Uh, But they decide to, weeks before, uh, to, uh, to bring a little Christmas early. The song itself is really peppy, but the lyrics are actually really sad. So I want you to hear these lyrics, and I won't sing them for you. Haul out the holly, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill the stocking, I may be rushing things, but deck the halls again now. She goes on, for I've grown a little leaner, grown a little colder, grown a little sadder, grown a little older, and I need a little angel sitting on my shoulder, need a little Christmas now. Ironically, it is after this song was written that we started celebrating Christmas earlier and earlier and earlier. It's a phenomenon, again, some call a Christmas creep, that it begins to creep into the rest of the year. Why is this? Well, the main character, uh, Mammy, I think many of us, can empathize with. We, we feel a little leaner, we feel a little colder, a little sadder, a little older, and Christmas seems to offer the interruption. It makes us forget our sorrows, right? It seems to offer joy when our joy has been locked out in the cold. In fact, I think in many ways, what we mean when we say we want to feel the Christmas spirit is we want some joy in our lives, and so we rush to get it, to manufacture it, to try and bring it closer, nearer, faster. But this joy Every year ends up fading so fast if you experience it all. And even when you do experience it, it tastes stale. It tastes packaged. It tastes cheap, doesn't it? 
Like a child who is so eager to open the Christmas gifts on Christmas morning. They look forward to it this whole season, who then is bored by lunchtime, who is beating their brother with the lightsaber until it breaks, tossing stuff into another pile of stuff that just isn't as exciting as it was the day before. The ironic thing is that the announcements of Christmas is the announcement of great joy, a joy that's enduring, unexpiring, a kind of joy that doesn't make us forget our sorrows, it replaces them. It turns sorrows even into joy. Looking back at our passage, I want to point out three things that distinguish this kind of joy, the kind of joy that is offered to you in Jesus that is so distinct from the packaged joy we are so cheaply offered this time of year. First, true joy is in God's hands. True joy is in God's hands. Notice the language in verse 22. Given everything that Jesus has said to his disciples, we might expect him to say, okay, again, you won't see me for a little while, but after a little while, we expect him to say, you will see me, right? You will see me. But read your verse. What does he actually say? He says, no, I will see you again. This may sound like a really trivial detail, but there is no trivial details when it comes to the scriptures. Jesus is saying, in a sense, your joy, your end to your sorrow is not dependent upon your initiative. It is coming because I will make it happen. I will see you again. I have promised, and I will come through on that very promise. Jesus, especially when his disciples are feeling deeply ashamed that they've only failed their Messiah, that they've lost absolutely everything, will not be able to manufacture that joy. They've only failed him. And yet Jesus says, even when you will not forgive it, even when you won't be looking for me any longer, I will see you again. Friends, the good news about this joy is that it's a certain reality regardless of my performance, regardless of my sense of it, that this joy has come and is mine if you belong to Christ, whether or not your heart wakes up to it this season or not. Joy is in God's hands for him to accomplish, not yours, even in loss, even in depression, even in grief, even in death, even when we are intoxicated with our own self-made packaged pleasures or distracted by trinkets and toys, joy is in God's hands. Second, true joy can't be taken from you. Verse 22 puts it really clear, doesn't it? But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is a remarkable claim, isn't it? Jesus is saying that the kind of joy that Jesus will give to Christians after his resurrection is a kind of joy that cannot possibly be taken away. Let me put this even clearer. Even I can't take it away. No, this doesn't mean that Christians walk around with smiles plastered on their faces. We really have a hard time with those kind of religious people. Some of us are those religious people who feel like to be close to God is to pretend like everything is fine, to ignore suffering and loss, to treat it as if uh, the sun will come out tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day, and it takes just a little bit of time before those, uh, those, uh, those uh, 
really cliches don't comfort us anymore and we snap on people. You ever been there? Ever snapped on somebody who's used a cliche with you? You know, this, uh, Christians aren't those who uh, plaster smiles on their faces, pretending that life is fine, ignoring that our lives really are full of pain and loss and failure. No, in fact, the Bible assumes that it is possible to experience joy amidst sadness, even in depression, even in anxiety. This kind of joy is set in the heart of a believer, even when my emotions don't correspond to it. Because, of course, joy is about something much deeper and richer than my circumstances, which are temporary and fleeting, aren't they? No matter what you lose, no matter who you fail, no matter what dream dies or child is lost or love is betrayed, Joy is deeper and richer than temporary circumstantial happiness because joy is rooted in a new relationship that is unchanging, that will never be taken away, that will never become untrue for you. One, a new relationship that God has secured at infinite cost to his own self. A relationship that he is invested in, committed to, will see to the end. What higher payment could he expend for it? as the promise, as the foretaste of what he will bring safe to the end, a relationship in which God is making use even of sorrows for our good. Our joy is rooted not only in the fact that Jesus was born, not only in the fact that Jesus has died, but that Jesus lives again. And because Christians have Jesus, they have joy. It is the only path to joy. And I want to appeal to, the, to, you, to those of you who uh, are examining Christianity from a distance. Again, I'm so glad that you're here. Whatever has brought you here, whether you feel like you, uh, again, have much in common with religion or not, again, this is the church to begin to work through those, your skepticism, your doubts, your struggles, your pain. Do it with actual real life believers who probably have shared some of your story. But you can't consider Christianity from a distance forever. You can't just glean off its joy, leech off its joy. If you want to experience the kind of joy that is lasting, that is reassuring, that actually helps you to process your unanswered questions, that actually helps you to process your deepest pain and losses, even the baggage that you bring with you, this kind of joy that allows you to begin to bring this to God to process for the rest of your life with those who understand, you can only find that kind of clarifying joy and coming to faith through Jesus Christ. If you're waiting for your life to make sense apart from him, friend, it's going to be plastic, expiring joy. It will not finally satisfy. Christianity can't be just an intellectual reality for you. It is something that requires every single one of us to give ourselves body and soul to Jesus Christ, to hand ourselves over to him, to place our faith in him, to say that he is my joy now. That is the only joy that actually ends up being satisfying. Christians hasn't, now it's important to say though that this doesn't mean that joy is unrelated to our emotions. Some would say that joy is, again, is, is we make too hard of a break between joy and happiness. We say, well, it's definitely not being happy. But I have to say, friends, joy actually has a lot in common with happiness. Now, our happiness, our sense of happiness, rides the roller coaster of our circumstances, doesn't it? No, 
In fact, though, the, mar- the more our heart wakes up to the reality that is in Christ and the relationship that we have with him, you know what happens? Real happiness begins to catch us by surprise. It will become overtaking for us. We'll begin to experience and taste a kind of happiness, and we've not gotten anywhere else. And, but we know ourselves enough that that begins to expire. You know, our lives are unpredictable. Our minds, our hearts, and our bodies don't work as they should. And so our sense of that joy will be in fits and spurts. But a day is coming where those tastes will give way to reality, where final, rich, enduring, satisfying joy will be finally ours in Christ. We will be finally, enduringly happy in him. God hasn't called Christians, then, to live a life of drudgery drudgery, or of purposeless self-sacrifice. Now, it does call us to die to ourselves. It does. Christianity is, the cost is very high. It requires us to follow Jesus in obedience, and then in many ways it means taking up our cross and following him. But again, it is not a just a merely purposeless self-sacrifice, as if happiness was not something God wanted for us. The reason we die to ourselves is joy. The reason why we sacrifice ourselves is joy. In fact, we are following Jesus on the way of joy as we take up our cross, because guess what? What, took, what caused Jesus to take up his cross was the joy of the Lord, which was set before him. Joy is the path in which we are following Jesus. The reason Christians suffer temporary losses, why they surrender temporary gains. The reason why Christians are unimpressed with earthly joys is because greater joy is theirs in Christ. Let me ask you, though, if you're a Christian, do you live like this? Do people experience joy from you? Yes, be honest about your, your suffering and loss, the things that have not worked out for you this past year. Go to those who will hear you, pray with you, but do they experience still enduring joy from you? Not a plastic pasted on smile, but a kind of joy because you know what is still true in Christ, what is yours in him, what is unchanging and what he has done to secure it. How do people experience you? Do they get honest, authentic joy from you over what is yours in Jesus and what it means to belong, body and soul, to him? And third, True joy is experienced in seeking God's will. Our passage ends in somewhat of a confusing place. It comes with a rather shocking promise that whatever we ask in Jesus' name, the Father will give us. Now, I don't have time to preach another sermon here, but it's important to say that this isn't the Christian version of asking Santa Claus for a pony for Christmas. Okay? When it says we are asking in Jesus' name, it means that we are seeking the things that Jesus is about. We are asking, in a sense, the Father on behalf of Christ for the things we know concern his kingdom and his will. And the thing is, is that what makes these prayers so powerful, so surrendered to God's will, is because we actually know God's will now. When I said that the disciples could not understand God's purposes, they could not understand the events of the death and resurrection of Christ, is because Christians now actually do We are made God's friends, in a sense, because God has filled us into the grand master plan of history. We know what his will is. We know what he's accomplishing. Even as our lives are unpredictable, we don't know what the headlights are going to hold or what loss I'm going to suffer tomorrow, but we do know whose hands history is in and where he is taking them. We know what he's promised to do in and through my life. And so as I seek his will, which is clear in the word, along that way is the experience of joy. 
After all, what motivated God to secure me for himself is to give me enduring joy. He is committed to me finding that joy. And finding that joy is in taking him at his word. Christians, by faith in Jesus, come to see and know God's will and purposes for their life. And it's only by latching their faith to him that their qualms and questions are comforted. And friends, again, our experience of joy is bound up with how we seek God's will, primarily, as it says here, in our prayer life, and how we talk to God, and how we seek his face. And notice again, the ultimate aim of all these things is joy. God wants joy for you. He invites us into obedience and a life of trust, of deep dependence, because he wants joy for us, and that is where it's found. This theme is all over the Bible. The idea of coming joy, a coming joy which in many ways is already ours, and it transformed the lives of, the fall of those who followed Christ, particularly how they saw their own sufferings. And we looked at one of these to begin our service, and I want to read it one more time for us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Did you notice that these men's, they, men, they suffered beatings, they suffered starvation. These men and women, loss of friends and family and reputation, they even went to their own death. And they have their audacity to call their sufferings light and momentary. Why? Because of the joy that is now theirs in Christ. His joy with, that is bound up with Jesus animated them and animates us. A kind of joy that is in God's hands, a kind of joy that cannot be taken, and a God, kind of joy that is experienced in seeking God's will. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as those who are needing joy in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our losses, trying to look for joy in the wrong places and coming up wanting every time. Would we live lives of remarkable joy that allows us to be honest and let, lets us see something that's even more true of what is ours now in Christ, of who he is and what he has done for us and the assurance that he will deliver us safe to the end. Would that kind of joy keep us stable, keep us full of hope, and would we extend it to others, particularly in times like these? We pray all these things for Christ's sake. Amen.